Well, it looks like the timer here is broken, so you guys are in for a treat. <laughs> I think it's not a battery. Uh, please open up in your Bibles to the book of Jude. And someone remind me after the service to change the batteries. This is, if you don't know where it is, the second to last book in the Bible, right before everyone's favorite book, the book of Revelation. False teaching is a grave, grave danger to the church. Jesus warned his disciples about it. The apostles warned the churches about it. And you can hardly turn the page when reading a New Testament book and not have some warning offered about these things. There are a plethora of false teachings in our day, but there is one particular teaching that I have repeatedly encountered, and I often hear heralded as a good thing in Christian circles. It's an error that I think has run dangerously unkept and unconfronted in American Christianity. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard someone teach that the entirety of the Christian life is to believe in Christ and be saved? That is certainly the start. But that is not true that that's the entirety of the Christian life. Much of Christianity does not often preach what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he declares, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You've probably heard the statement, we are saved by faith. There's a part of that that's true. But more precisely, we are justified by faith and we live by faith as a gift of God, is not from us, but we are also his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, if you're sweating a little bit and worried that I've run off the rails, let me set your heart at ease. There is only one way to have peace with God. That's certainly true. It's not vain works. It's not powerless ordinances. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what is needed for eternal life. We are given righteousness as a gift to be received by faith alone. Yes, yes, and amen. But the false teaching that I think has gained much ground in the soul of American Christianity is this. Because we are justified by faith in Christ and are not under the law, but are under grace, good works are not, strictly speaking, necessary. I'll say that one more time. This is the error that I think is commonly found in American churches, that good works are not strictly necessary because we've been justified by faith. Brothers and sisters, this teaching comes from the mouth of hell itself. It is a doctrine of demons, and like a wildfire, it has relentlessly spread and consumed many. And that's not new, that's not novel, that's something that has been happening since the very first century. This book of Jude is a small book. It's only one chapter. But that is the subject of the book of Jude. Jude confronts this very error, the error of turning the grace of God into a license to sin. And I think that we need to feel the weight of Jude. It is an especially suitable book for our day. And so for the next several weeks, 
We're going to take a break from the Gospel of John, and we're going to study through the book of Jude. This week, we're only going to cover the first two verses. Don't worry, I'm not going to be maintaining that pace the entire way through. Uh, But there are some precious truths in the introduction, jewels and gems of salvation worthy of our inspection. What we're going to do is, because it's only one chapter, we're going to read the entire book, and we're going to go back and take a closer look at the first two verses. Let's read and then pray. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, aid us this morning as we study your word. Help us to see these truths of our salvation that are written there. Sanctify us, Lord. Lord, I need your aid. Please, Father, convict people Convict the church here of their need to love you, to respond to your love in love. And Lord, awaken our minds to behold the immensity of your kindness towards us. Aid us this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verses 1 and 2. From these two verses, I want to draw your attention to three points taken from the text. Three points. First, I want to talk about Jude's identity. Second, I want to talk about Jude's audience. And third, I want to talk about Jude's method. Jude's method. Jude's identity, his audience, and his method. Let's begin by considering Jude's identity. He begins this epistle by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, quite honestly, we don't have tons of information about Jude, but notice here he says he is a brother of James. And James, we do know a little bit more about. James was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. Notably, he was also a physical brother of Jesus. If you were to look in Matthew 13, you would see that Matthew lists the names of several of our Lord's brothers. He says James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, the names of some of them. Now, there were a lot of Jameses in that time, but in Acts chapter 15 and 21, James is presented as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Then in Galatians, Paul, when he says he went and visited Jerusalem, said that he saw James, the Lord's brother. And again, this same James was singled out as an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. He's also the author of the epistle of James. So Jude here states he is a brother of James. If you just use some simple deduction, if Jude is the brother of James... And James is the brother of Jesus, then that would make Jude the brother of Jesus as well. And indeed, if you look at that list in Matthew 13, we have James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Judas is Judah or Jude, all the same name in Greek. If you recall, then, you think back to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, Jesus' siblings were not fans of Jesus during his earthly ministry. In one particular occasion, after Jesus returned home from doing miraculous works and signs, the Gospel of Mark records, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was nuts, at least earlier in his ministry, and they felt it was their duty as his family to intervene. Jesus, cool it. You're ruffling some feathers here. They thought their older brother was off the rails. Clearly, by the time Jude writes this epistle, he's had a change of heart about his brother. Instead of Jude raving about his brother's lunacy, he remarks a a very humble statement. He says, Jude, a servant or a slave of Christ. Now, I imagine if any of us were the physical siblings of Jesus and we were to write an epistle, that might be a piece of information we would just throw in there. It seems like that would potentially garner greater attention. I mean, there are lots of servants of Christ, but how many brothers of Christ are there? What was he like as a kid? I kind of want to know, you know. 
But he foregoes that. Jude makes no mention of it at all. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that was certainly no accident. I, I think there were at least two reasons that Jude emphasizes this servile relationship. Two reasons. First, it is actually a greater honor to be a servant of Christ than a fleshly brother of Christ. Jesus is not only Jude's brother. Jesus is his righteousness, his savior. So as a matter of first importance, he proclaims, I am the Lord's servant. I have been saved and cleansed and forgiven by my brother's precious blood. I mean, who did Jesus say his true brothers were? Those who did the will of his father. And that stands true both for Jude and also for us. The Lord is nearer to you, church, than if you were his biological sibling. He dwells in you. He dwells in you and you in him. And he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so Jude emphasizes this greater relationship of master and servant in the first verse here. A second reason I think he draws us out. Because this is kind of the topic of the entire epistle. The lordship of Jesus, the master-servant relationship that we have with him. Jesus is no mere man. He is, he is the God-man. He is highly exalted. Who is like him? Certainly, no one. And that glory, that peculiar and particular glory that Jesus has, that is alone due to Christ. And so instead of lifting himself up, Jude lays himself low in submission to the Lord Jesus, the master and ruler, not only of him, but of the cosmos. He is our superior. We are his inferior. And thus it is fitting we should be in submission to him because of his very nature. He's God. He's exalted. He's the creator. It's our duty to obey him. Yet also, because of what Jesus accomplished, he is our master. Because of what Jesus secured for the saints, he is our Lord. Before Jude spends the rest of this epistle, uh, epistle pulling the weeds of falsehood, he like sprays weed killer in this one quick statement. This is the relationship we're to have. This is the duty for Christians. We are the Lord's slaves. That's how we were created, to worship and obey him. And I want to pause and kind of dwell on this for a, truth, for a moment, because this truth is very significant. We were created to be servants to someone or something. That's how we were made. And our culture has disregarded that truth for a lie, a lie, for a great evil that masquerades as a virtue. The entire world has bought into this lie, and many Christians have as well. And here's the lie, that human autonomy is a good thing. The lie is that human autonomy is a good thing. That's like American Culture 101. Freedom. We ought to determine our lives. We should have the liberty to choose for ourselves and to live as we see fit. I think we hear these things frequently shouted when we consider the world of abortion, right? We, we hear, uh, I should have the right to choose, or no one can tell me what to do with my body. So we see the error there, but this devilish thought doesn't remain in non-Christian circles. It has infiltrated the church, brothers and sisters. Christians overvalue autonomy as a principle 
We want to determine our own path. We want to choose to do what we desire. How many people do you think choose how they worship God based off preferences? What they wish, how we live, how we spend our time, how we prioritize our, our very lives, how we spend our money, all these things have been infected with the lie of autonomy. And so many people balk at this, this idea of rules and commandments, and they say, oh, that's legalism, that's legalism. That's not legalism, that's the Bible. Every decision seemingly runs through a framework of what, what is easiest for me, what is most convenient for me. For example, I have Christian friends who they refuse, they refuse to have uh, children, uh, they're, they're friends from college, specifically because it would ruin their lifestyle. It's not what they want. And that's their only consideration. What would be best for me? What is most convenient and most simple and easiest? They don't ask the question, what has God given for me to do? What has my master demanded of me and asked of me? Autonomy is an enemy. It's not an ally. Independence, brothers and sisters, is a lie. It's a lie. Adam and Eve sought independence in the garden. You realize that. That was their problem. That was the very heart of the fall. They wanted to establish their own law, one filled with freedom over and above God's law. They assumed God's law was a negative, keeping them back from something. I don't need to be kept back from something. I want to choose to do what I want. And they were duped. They thought they knew better than God, and they didn't. And their self-rule killed them and their offspring. Listen, if you establish yourself as the best possible ruler in your own life, if you obey your own law, you will certainly reap sin and death just like they did. We serve something. We serve self, we're really just serving sin. But when we're saved, we're placed under the wise and kind lordship of Christ. We become slaves to righteousness, as Paul says in Romans. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You go where he says. You do what he demands. You act as he requires. You are not your own. And even if the Lord leads us into the, the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with us. His rod and his staff, he'll, he'll comfort us. So Jude proclaims, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He declares, I live to serve my good and faithful master, Jesus. There is no better Lord for you either, church. He is a good master. No one's yoke is lighter than his. No one's commandments are more freeing than his. No one will bring more joy than the Lord Jesus. And we'll cover this topic in more detail more, uh, next week. But brothers and sisters, we need this epistle. We need to be reminded of this truth that we ought to serve the Lord and be his slave. Now, let's proceed and consider our second point this morning. Jude's audience. Jude's audience. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept through Jesus Christ. There are three statements in this section that I really want to investigate. Calling, being beloved in God, and being kept for Jesus. These three things are like diamonds 
of the gospel. And we are permitted for a moment to pick them up and inspect them and revel in their glories and then put them down and move on to the next one. And may we be in awe of the Lord's work as we investigate these things. First, he says, to those who are called. This is his audience. He's telling us who he wrote this book to. He wrote the book to those who are called. So what's calling? Well, a call is an invite, uh, or more strongly, it's a summons. When the New Testament speaks of calling, it's referencing God's effective summons to salvation. God's effective summons to salvation. Romans 8 tells us truths about those whom God calls. I think it's helpful for understanding this idea. Paul writes, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Calling is a step in this chain, a step of our salvation. And those who are called are certainly justified and will be certainly glorified. They were called because God had foreknown and predestined them. This means, then, that not all men will be called, because not all men are glorified or justified. Calling here is not a general summons offered to all mankind. It is an effective call of God by which men are ushered into right standing before him. When a king summons you, you obey. You show up. When he calls, you come. And that's the calling that Paul and Jude refer to. If a king's summons is effective, how much more effective is the summons of the almighty sovereign Lord of the universe? The language in Romans and Jude kind of peels back the curtain of reality and gives us a glimpse into heavenly things. But we must remember that these eternal truths of our salvation do not operate outside of the other teachings of Scripture. Man is justified by faith in Christ. Scripture teaches that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. God's call does not operate independently of these truths, but by means of it. God calls us to faith and repentance. And those whom he calls certainly come. And so, I want to speak to those who are not Christian this morning. You must heed the teachings of Scripture. God's wrath is a most terrible and weighty thing, and it comes against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. Sin is anything that violates God's holy nature, anything that does not conform to his holy law. And scripture tells us, all of us have sinned. You are not without sin this morning. And many of you, if you're here, likely know the gospel. You likely know what we say week in and week out. But if you have not repented of your sins and your life of sin, if you have not turned in faith, I urge you, do not delay. And all of us ought to search our hearts diligently. Have we turned from our sin and trusted in Christ alone? Have we just coasted on our upbringing? Or have we been caught up in Christian culture without having a faith of our own? A Christian is not one outwardly Christian is one who has been forgiven, cleansed, and justified. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to him 
and be saved from the wrath of God. This day turn to him and experience the blessed joy of free forgiveness and rest for your weary soul. Jude writes to those called, that is to Christians who are certainly Christians, to those who are justified and will be glorified. He then gives two further descriptors about his intended audience. He says, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved in God the Father. Uh, it's important to note that Jude does not use here a noun. He uses a form of a verb. And that's actually, I think, important. By this, he's highlighting the action of us being loved by God. Saints, that God loves us is a stunning and mysterious truth. We hear this, God loves you. Yeah, okay. But the weight and immensity of that statement is profound. God is love itself. He defines what love is. There is no love outside of God. He is love. If you want to know what love is, you look to him. There is no more pure expression of what we call love in existence. And he has loved you. He's loved you with the pure expression of the fullness of his nature and being. And this is a truth worth glorying in and learning from that we may love because he first loved us. I want to draw your attention to five truths about God's love this morning to ponder this week and to draw us into nearer communion with him. First, God's love is particular. God's love is particular. And by this I mean God's love, his redemptive love, is not given to all his creatures. God doesn't love everyone the same? No. Now that might be a surprising statement, but it's true. Our Lord has a general kindness for all mankind. That's true. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And yet... There is a particular, special, effective, dramatic kind of love he has for his people. When God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, at minimum, we can agree, he's saying he has a kind of love for Jacob that he does not have for Esau. God loved Moses differently than he loved Pharaoh. God loved Israel different than he loved Assyria. Uh, Rich has often used this illustration. I found it helpful, and I'm thus stealing it. I have a general love for uh, all the kids in my neighborhood. But I don't love them the way I love my own kids. I have a particular love for my own kids that results in particular blessings for them. I have a general love for them, surely, that's true. But our love is multifaceted. So too is God's. Second point about God's love. God's love is the root cause, the root cause of all our spiritual blessings. Why was God rich in mercy towards you, Christian? Why have you received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Why are you not considered a mere servant, but a son? Why is he a tender father to you when you are by nature a child of wrath? Because of his love for you. 
That's why. Ephesians 1 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love he predestined us for adoption. And then, and then even more so, why would Christ die for you when you're a sinner? While you were still a sinner, Christ died. For a good man, someone might die, but Christ died for his enemies, and why is that? This is like if a live grenade was thrown on the ground next to you, and Christ, the general of the enemy army, runs out of the bushes, throws himself on the grenade, but you weren't on his side of the war. You were an enemy soldier. You fought to tear down his kingdom. Jesus did not jump on the grenade of God's holy wrath for a heavenly people who were perfect in every way. He died for his enemy to save his enemy, to save you. What compels this? God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us the demonstration of God's love. Every blessing you have as a Christian is an expression of this divine love towards you. It is for you the fountain of all other blessings, the source of all good you have in your life. The Bible says that all of the gifts that we have, every good gift is from the Lord. Why does he give you these good gifts if you are a Christian? He gives them to you because he loves you. So there is no good that you have there's no, no, I'm, I'm talking just natural goods. You have a roof over you ha- your head. You, you eat good food at night. Those things are gifts that God has given to you because he loves you. Because he loves you. That's it. That's the reason. Third thing I want to draw out. God's love is an act of divine freedom. Divine freedom. What I mean by that is God has no obligation to love us. He's not under an obligation to love us. Do we deserve God's love? Certainly not. So then why does he love us? Because he chose to as an expression of his divine freedom. In the Old Testament, God says of Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Israel is a type of the church. And so that reality is still applicable to us on a scaled up level. It is not because of us that we're beloved in God. His love is absolutely freely given before you had done anything, either good or bad. He loved you. Our faith did not compel him to love us, for he died while we were still sinners. There's nothing good in you or in I that compelled or obligated God to love us. He has loved us merely for his good pleasure and glory. And for the record, no, I'm getting there. Okay, sorry, I was going off. Now I'll say it anyways. For the record, okay, what that means is if it's not dependent on you, you can't Screw it up. You can't avert God's love away from you. If it's not because of your faith, and it's not because of your works, and it's because of his eternal glory and pleasure, 
all you do is receive. You're just the recipient. That is a gift. I'll come back around to that. I, I jumped ahead, but I had to say, you know. Fourth thing, God's love is eternal. Eternal. You realize that God placed his love upon you before the foundation of the world, before the ages began. He didn't start loving us when we were born. His love is eternal. He chose to love us and then worked to secure our redemption in Christ. And then fifth, the point I just made. Because God's love is a free and eternal act of God, it is certainly unchangeable. It is unchangeable. You can do nothing to turn away God's love from you. If you are a Christian, you can do nothing, nothing, no vile sin that you commit in the future will turn his love away from you. And that doesn't excuse the need for holiness. We're getting there next week. But the, the reality is his love is immutably placed upon you. And so we can say with Paul at the end of Romans 8, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? The combination of these truths is overwhelming. How vast is the love of God for us beyond all measure? We now have peace with God. We can meditate on his goodness towards us. He has purpose good for you. He protects us. He, he trains us. He disciplines us because he loves us. The world itself may turn against you. Everything in your life could crumble to bits, but it cannot rob you of the eternal love of God for you. And what comfort awaits you in that truth? What peace is found in the love of God? Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The weary soul will find rest in this. You are beloved in God, brothers and sisters. So how should we respond to this great love? What's our duty then? We receive all this. What should we do? As 1 John tells us, we love because he first loved us. God's love for us causes us to abound in love for God. God demonstrated love by showering us with undeserved blessings, by marching his only begotten son to slaughter for our sakes. In the same manner, our love for God ought to compel us to action. You remember the greatest commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Church, we should take seriously that commandment. Many things vie for your affections. Many things dull your heart. This world is especially tuned to dull the hearts of saints and to make it seem like God is not as wondrously beautiful and amazing as he is. If you cannot find a love for God in your soul, first you need to examine if you have love for God at all. If you have no love of God in your heart, are you a Christian? But if you are a Christian, if you have turned in faith, then you must take great efforts to stoke the flames of affection for God. Pray diligently that the Spirit of God would liven your heart to the Lord. And then cut out those things 
that distracts your eyes downward and, and pull your affections away from God. Train your heart to see God as the giver of all blessings and give Him regular thanks. And this will begin to train us, train our souls to love the giver of these good gifts. And, and may God not allow any earthly thing to rob us of our love and affection for God. I've found personally a great help in using the greatest commandments as kind of a paradigm for self-evaluating how I love God. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Heart, affections. Yes, ye good Calvinists, affections. <laughs> that means emotions. Emotions. A lot of people in the Reformed tradition are often displayed as stoic and unmoving. But that's very odd to me because our doctrines don't produce that. And our legacy is not a legacy of stoicism. If you've ever read those uh, our fathers in the Reformed tradition, you'll find a sweet and robust love for God there. Samuel Rutherford and Thomas Watson and John Owen and John Bunyan, even up to Charles Spurgeon, they have such profound affections for God. You can't read their stuff and not be struck by these men loved God. They loved him. They delighted in him. And their doctrines led them to love him. How can the doctrines that we cling to result in coldness in our hearts? If we rightly understand them, they ought to produce warmness and praise. Listen, if the task of theology doesn't drive us to warm communion with God, it is a dead theology and most dangerous to our souls. Dead theology is the, is the theology of Satan. He believes that God is one. The demons believe that God is one, and they shudder. So love God with your heart, with your affections. But we don't stop there. That's not the be-all, end-all of love for God. Heart, soul, soul. I use soul to prompt me, remember, to keep the Lord's commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If we obey not the commandments of God, if we have no concern for holiness, if we let sin run free in our hearts, if we hide our iniquities from others and value men more than God, there is no love of God in our hearts. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So love God with your deeds. Heart, soul, mind, mind. We love God by thinking about the things of God, by meditating on his word and learning of his excellencies. This is where theology has its place, as a demonstration of love for God, where we behold him and marvel at his excellencies. And lastly, heart, soul, mind, strength. We fight to love God in our life. We fight to make everything we do an expression of love for God. When we work, it's for our love for him. When when we sing, it's out of a devotion for him. When we play with our kids, it's an expression of our love for God. We work diligently to do everything for the glory of God. That's the second of our third diamonds that we're looking at. We had those who are called, those beloved in God the Father, and last, we have those kept for Jesus Christ. Kept means preserved or guarded. We are preserved. That's a passive Verb, that means we are preserved. We don't preserve ourselves. We are preserved by someone else. Have you ever wondered, sin is really powerful. It has great power. It hardens the heart. 
Why has your sin not risen up and turned your heart away from God? You certainly sin. Why has it not had that effect? Or false teaching. Many have fallen prey to false teaching. Why not you? Are you smarter? Are you more godly? Less likely to falter? No. Your own hand has very little power over your heart. The Lord works to preserve those whom he loves. So be encouraged and be assured, if you are called and beloved in God, the Lord will not let your foot slip. You believe because God has preserved your faith. And that is worthy of regular praise. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the faith of the saints. No trial, no falsehood, no sickness, no scheme of hell or trickery of Satan will destroy your faith because of him, him who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless to God, as Jude will say later. We are his sheep. No one is able to snatch his sheep out of his hand. Notice the particular language Jude uses. He says, kept for Jesus Christ. Your faith endures by God's hand for Jesus' sake. You're, you're a trophy of his grace, of his sacrifice and his power. You bring glory to God by being redeemed, and no enemy will plunder the trophy case of our Lord. In every way, he will keep you. He will preserve you. For his own sake, he will keep you and preserve you. Brothers and sisters, these are, these are glorious truths. And I would encourage you to meditate on these things. Let us now continue to our third overall point this morning. We've considered Jude's identity, his audience, and I now want to look at Jude's method, his method. This point is more of an introductory point, something worth noting about the entire epistle that he starts off here. Uh, verse 3, the very next verse after our text this morning, gives us Jude's purpose in writing. He says, he's appealed to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So how does Jude attack and defend and contend for the faith against hellish false teaching? He writes to Christians. He writes to those who are called. And then he comprises the bulk of his discourse with allusions to Old Testament stories. He talks about the Exodus and Sodom and Gomorrah and Cain and Balaam and Korah's rebellion and Enoch. His entire, his entire argument rests on the authority of what God has done in the past. And church, we ought to learn from his example. Jude wars against false teaching by addressing believers with Scripture. By addressing believers with Scripture. Listen to this. The surest defense against the perversion of truth is for the saints of God to be saturated with the Word of God. I'll say that again. The surest defense against the perversion of truth is for the saints of God to be saturated with the, world of, with the word of God. God is not surprised by false teaching. He's, he's known from eternity past what falsehoods would arise. They don't surprise him. And so he has placed in his word ample defense for every error. In scripture, we find all we need to be corrected and instructed and equipped for every good work. Jude, in closing out, the regular epistles of the New Testament instruct us not only with words, but with methods. 
The Spirit here is training us and showing us what to do to fight false teaching. We follow the example of Jude, and we know Scripture. That's how we fight false teaching. We know Scripture. We look at what he has said. I've often been surprised when I am confronted with a really odd error, whether it be of Mormonism or something else, that there's a verse for that. I've never paid attention to this one verse. But this weird error over here, that verse does not fit with with what God has said. God has prepared in his word a defense for everything that might crop up. So we ought to know it. If we seek to fight against false teaching, if we seek to contend for the faith, we must know his word. Before I close this morning, I want to give a special word to parents. Because I think that oftentimes the world is a discouraging place for us when we consider raising our kids. What parent doesn't look at their children and cry out to God for mercy? It feels sometimes like all the lies of the world are aimed to just snatch them up. It's like Satan himself is prowling around outside our front door, eager to consume our children. And we're, we're acutely aware of our limitations. How can we stop the onslaught of lies and temptations against our kids? How can we hope when a world tries to steal their souls? Parents, you can have hope because the Lord is kind. And he has given us tools for the battle. He's given us tools for the battle. Look to Jude for instruction on this. Do not forsake the word of God when raising your children. Do not forsake the word of God when raising your children. God gives us the ordinary means of grace for the preservation of his people. If your children are beloved of God, then scripture will have its intended effect. To quote our brother Paul Washer, we must take up the weapons of our warfare, and they are few, but they are mighty unto God. Fathers, fathers, Wash your family in the water of the word. That is your duty before God. Deuteronomy 6 tells us, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We're supposed to speak the word of God all the time, constantly, constantly flooding our children with the instruction of the word. We need to saturate our households like it. Have you ever dropped a bounty paper towel in a standing pool of water? It just soaks it up and floats on top of the abundance of water. That ought to be our households with the word. We ought to be saturated with it. Spurgeon, speaking about John Bunyan, once said of him, he has read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. He cannot write anything without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is Bible. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Let this be the goal for your children to so infuse Scripture into their life that both you and they bleed Bibles. We are not good at keeping our kids 
from bleeding the things of this world. And what I mean by that is we fill up their minds with catchy things in the world, music and movies and facts about random things that are not as significant as God's word. We ought to give them the Bible, good food, not stone, bread. I offer you this warning, fathers. If you forsake the word of God in your home, you are opening up your flank to attack. Our enemy is powerful, he's crafty, and he will sneak in the cracks and exploit our weaknesses. If you do not teach the truths of God to your families, do not be surprised when your children are ensnared with lies and sin. Jude concludes this introduction with a prayer. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This introduction prepares us for what's coming in the rest of the epistle. And we're besieged with much of the same errors, so it's worth calling to mind the glorious truths of our salvation. The Lord has called you. He's summoned you into the grace in which you stand. He called you because he loved you. He's loved you since before the foundation of the world, and this love will cause him to preserve you and keep you for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And such love, such acts, surely require obedience and devotion. The best we have to offer. We are not our own masters. He is our master. He is worthy of being our master. And so be regularly reminded of your salvation and these precious truths of your salvation. May our love for God grow. I want to leave you with the words of 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we delight, we delight in your love. And Lord, we confess the coldness and dullness of our hearts. We confess that we have saturated our own minds with frivolous things that clog the arteries of our soul. And Lord, we, we confess that we've not fed our children good bread. Lord, you're kind and you're merciful and you've loved us and, and you're gracious to us. And so Lord, help us. By your Spirit, strengthen us. Strengthen us that we would delight in you with our heart, our whole heart, and our minds, and our souls, and our strength. And Lord, cause us to see the importance of our servitude to you. Help us to see the errors of our age. The errors that say you are not a God worth obeying. Lord, help us to be obedient, for surely you are a most excellent holy and wise God, who in and of yourself, Lord, you are worthy of obedience and also because you have purchased us with the blood of Christ and redeemed us from sin. Lord, help the realities of our salvation compel us to be obedient and to love you. We need the help of your spirit in this, Lord. Our world is wicked. Our minds are distracted. So please, Lord, center us on your word. Convict us of our sin and cause us to love you, Lord. Thank you for the love which you've shown us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.